Film Society of Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing two highlights from our Paul Verhoeven retrospective last fall. Occasioned by the release of Elle, which won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film and earned Isabel Huppert the Best Actress Golden Globe as well as an Oscar nomination, we celebrated the work of one of the world's most fearless and provocative filmmakers. Two of the most popular screenings were the uncut version of his American breakthrough film, Robocop, and the subversive cult classic, Starship Troopers. Verhoeven himself joined us for Q&As at both screenings, accompanied by special guest lead actor Casper Van Dien at Starship Troopers. Let's go now to our Q&A with Paul Verhoeven, following the screening of Robocop. And after that, you'll hear the director's extended introduction for Starship Troopers with Casper Van Dien. Both talks were moderated by our director of programming, Dennis Lynn. Is anyone seeing that for the first time? You talked about how your Dutch films were really sort of um, rooted and invested in, in reality, um, and then you know moving to the States and working in uh, this sort of science fiction blockbuster idiom, a, a totally new kind of language. But watching Robocop again today, I think it's, it's really striking how much the film actually relates to the um, political and social reality of 1980s America? Sure, but I think that um, we have to thank really the two writers, uh, Michael Miner and um, Neumeyer, who basically presented a lot of these things already in the script. I mean, I, I came to, in, to the United States, was 85, 86, and yeah, I jumped into this movie, but I was not um, so much aware of the political situations that were around. So I, I am very, um, um, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that none of these uh, political observations were coming from me. They, <laughs> they were really there. A lot of that was already in the script, and I'm sure I used it. And, and basically, having been uh, a child during World War II and being occupied by the Germans in. Uh, in the, in the for, uh, 40s in Holland. I mean, I recognized a lot of stuff and in some way, but although differently. So, but I mean, it's really uh, at Neumeyer, Michael Miner, we, we set up this kind of uh, political um, um, level that the movie has. I mean, some of them were global things too, like just the idea of like privatization and corporatization, you know. Of, uh, yeah, sure, but uh, I, I, even that was already in the script. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, we discussed a lot and I, I added some scenes and this, and, but in general, I would say I was uh, ignorant to a large degree living in Europe in a different situation in Holland. I was really ignorant about everything, or not everything, but a lot of things that were really uh, happening in the United States. And so I had to, I, I was, um, that Neumeyer um, was with me on the set during the whole shoot of the movie. And every time that I made mistakes culturally, uh, mostly, perhaps also in dialogue, um, he was there basically to help me. And on top of that, we had an, a, a wonderful producer, John Davidson, who was there with me all the time and, and protected me against my European mistakes. 
What do you mean by European mistake? Well, that basically, uh, I remember that basically when I was reading the, br the, the, the script for the first time, there was a, a, a text where I said, what do you mean, brother? And I wrote in the, I still have it, I wrote in this, on, uh, at, uh, uh, to the side why it's not established, established anywhere that it's really his brother. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's true, you know, <laughs> that shows my ignorance about certain things in the United States. I, I mean, I got better later when I was doing Starship Troopers, you know, and I'm still doing better now. But I have not been able to show that to the uh, American audiences. I mean, I'll get my chance now, perhaps. We'll talk a bit about how you made, you know, made this film yours. I feel like one thing that's run throughout your career is, as you touched on, you know, you often work with material by generated that you don't write, uh, that's sometimes right. based on existing material, but um, I think you found a way to make really personalized, uh, I would say, all your films. Um, and I'm wondering, you, you mentioned a few things in relation to Robocop, uh, and I was struck by, um, you mentioned Mondrian. Can you talk a little bit about Yeah, that? I, I mean, uh, again, you know, it's not something that I didn't really invent. There, there were this basically in the script, when I got the script, there were really this, uh, let's say, interventions, I would say, in the main narrative. Uh, the main narrative is about Robocop, but let's say there are the commercials and, and, and certain issues of the news and whatever about the American presidents in, in, in space and whatever. I mean, these elements were already there. I mean, so uh, w when I uh, when I got the script, I felt that they should be there as abruptly as possible. That they would not really be somebody is in a room and you see the television is on and then you see what's on the television. I felt it would be extremely that it would be really modern and and uh, to cut it right into the main narrative, interrupt the, the main narrative, uh, show the, these kind of uh, commercials or newsreels, and cut back to the narrative. And, and, and I, I based that really on, on my admiration for a Dutch-American uh, artist, painter, uh, Mondrian, who, if you know his work, basically works with these squares of blue and red and, and green and whatever, but then it's, in, let's say, they are very sharp, black lines in between, like chuck, 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 uh, black, and then there are these, these squares there. It's all abstract, abstract art. And I felt that the, 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 this movie should do the same, that it would not, not, not prepare you for, it, for television news or whatever. It would you just throw it in your, in your face. And of course, I was coming to the United States, was anyhow com completely coming from a, from a European Dutch background, I was completely taken aback by showing terrible news, basically, uh, on the level of, 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 of the, uh, um, the rocket that exploded at that time, and then basically intercut by a commercial, you know? I mean, there's always a tragedy and, 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 and extremely emotional news, and, and then basically suddenly you get pa -pa -pa -pam in between, you know, and that was so non-European. They would never do that at that time. Of course, now they follow the American, uh, <laughs> American culture imperialism is all over the world. Of course, we know that, you know, so. And but, but we also in Holland and in the whole of Europe, we have, everybody has followed that example. So, but for me, it was really at that time saying, okay, I'm going to do something really uh, something that is, let's say, in movie making, it has not been done. I mean, in the news, uh, uh, in television, you could see it anyhow, but then but it was not basically used as, a, as an art form. I, I think I used it a bit more for structure and, 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 uh, and innovation. And you used the 
same device really in Starship Troopers, which you worked Yes, basically, with when, then, uh, when we started to uh, uh, get this group together a couple of years later, uh, John Davidson, me, uh, uh, Ed Neumeyer, and my uh, DP, Joe Vacano, um, uh, we wanted to do another movie together, and we did it with Starship Troopers, and then we decided, basically, that it should, should be, let's say, S similar to Robocop, although, uh, let's say, the, 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 the newsreels are much more showing, uh, let's, a, a kind of a, um, a political point of view. And uh, uh, let's saying that, that these people, I mean, that has to do with the double narrative of Starship Troopers. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but, but there is the main narrative that is really about young boys and young girls fighting giant bugs. You know, <laughs> that's the main issue. But then there is a counter narrative that says, by the way, these people are fascist. <laughs> so that's the point, and I think that's very, let's say, interesting in, 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 in perspective of today, of course. Yes, very relevant. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's talk about Jesus. Um, because yeah, basically you go. It was not a fascist. No. no, Jesus was not a fascist. That was not a good transition. But you you did talk about the, the Old Testament and the New Testament in your introduction, and and um, you've referred to Robocop as the American Jesus. Uh, sure. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, uh, Old Testament. I meant when I read the script and and studied the script, the real the scene that really seduced me and convinced me that I had to do this movie, even if it was in a different culture and language, etc., which is the scene when he comes to his house. And basically, and sees these images, these like flashbacks about his former life. And, I, and for me, that meant basically looking at Paradise Lost. And I basically, that's the way I shot it. That's the way, way uh, I, I uh, asked Bessel Polyduris to write the music, that it was really, let's say, uh, let's, uh, opening the gates of Eden. And so I've, I felt that was the scene for me that I said, okay, I can make this movie and I can give something really new to, the, uh, 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 let's say, uh, important for me, which is not too much on the nose really, but I can shoot it that way without anybody noticing what I'm doing. And that's basically why I, I said Old Testament, of course, that is Lost Paradise is beginning of, the, of, the, of Genesis, isn't it? And so uh, the other thing, the Jesus stuff, um, that's that I felt then when I was looking at the movie, at the, at the script further, then I started to see another metaphor, which is uh, Murphy being crucified and resurrected. And so uh, I felt that, the, that the, the death of Murphy, which is very much in the beginning, 15, 20 minutes inside the movie, basically, that it should be as cruel and as diabolical as the crucifixion of Jesus. And basically, as you know, in the, old, in the New Testament, it says that even the people, the passing priests, basically laugh at him and say, come down from the cross. And so I felt, I mean, you, you see, basically, the, 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 the people, basically, the gang is laughing. I mean, that's all me repeating the crucifixion of Jesus in, a, let's say, in, a, in, 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 in film language of the now. Um, and later, the resurrection basically is the same. It, there is this moment that we go to, to total blackout and uh, what, what, what people that are Christian would say, descent in hell. 
of Jesus' descent in hell and, 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 uh, and, uh, and conquering Satan, but for me it was a blackout, in fact. And, um, and then coming back step by step and, uh, and becoming reprogrammed in a different way. And if, if you really would take the, the, the Gospels and look at, at the words of Jesus after the, his so-called so resurrection, you would see that his language has become extremely simplistic, like, like what, what Murphy says, isn't it? Uh, thank you for your cooperation. <laughs> I understand. Etc. There's text like that continuously throughout the movie. If you look at the post-resurrection uh, uh, post words of Jesus, the same. Why do you, don't touch me. Here, feel and touch. Do you have something to eat? It's really that, you know, if you re read your Gospels, there is nothing more than that. Nowhere is there any, any possibility to see the Jesus that has been described before his, his death, which is all about parables, ethical behavior, and, and the, let's say the, 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 the blessings and all that stuff. That seems to be all evaporated. He only says, can you give me some fish? Uh, very interesting. So I, I felt that, uh, that Murphy resurrecting should be simplistic and basically have a program and have very few words. Till he at the end comes back to himself and says, I'm Murphy. <laughs> that was the idea. I mean, I didn't push that. Of course, you see at the end of the movie, uh, the four last scene, when he walks, basically, when you see them... Uh, um, uh, when Clarence Boddicker is there, and you see there the walls of, of, say, the walls of Jerusalem or the walls of Troy or whatever, and they walk up to, towards each other, uh, Robocop and and uh, and uh, Clarence Boddicker, the mean, the meanest guy of, of the movie, and then I built underneath the the water, I built a grid, you know, so that he could walk over water and say. I don't arrest you anymore. I'm going to kill you. It doesn't say that, but he means I'm going to kill you now. And that's why I call it the American Jesus. Um, I just want to get into the, just the, the production of the film a little bit. Um, I was just looking again at the, the book um, on your work by Rob Venture, and he describes the making of Robocop and devotes many pages to uh, the... The robo suit. suit, yes, and it was quite a challenge. For yeah, it was quite a challenge. That be, that was a really mistake of of uh, of, of at Numari and me when Robo team for the first time presented to us the the, the Robocop suit, basically that they had made in clay, and so it later had to be, of course, reproduced in other material. Uh, we started to comment on that, and we thought we had better ideas. And you can see how, f how wrong you can be as a writer-director um, because we try to, um, to push our version of Robocop on Robotine and inspired by Japanese comic books. And uh, which make him, made him, would make, have made him much more bulkier, I would say. And that took us really, I would say, some time, and we're talking really about a couple of weeks, perhaps even more, that we um, didn't say, see our mistake. And finally we did, of course, be, and we apologized, but of course the production of the suit was heavily de delayed, which had the consequence that when we were shooting the movie, the suit was not ready. 
and that uh, that Peter Weller, who had been based, had been uh, f uh, practicing with, uh, let's say, uh, a football outfit to find out what you could do and how to, how to work in a suit like that. I mean, none of the everything that he had worked on worked. I mean, he couldn't move. He couldn't move this. He couldn't do that. And it was a, a really a panic on the set. We had to stop production and and revise everything. And it was all our my and and mostly mine, of course, mistake to uh, to think that I knew better than Rob Boutin, who is anyhow fantastic. I mean, he's an enormously gifted guy, and, and as, as is Phil Tippett, who did here at Tour 9, and the Starship Group did all the animals. I mean, I'm so lucky that I was, it's all coming from, Rob, from John Davidson. Eh? I didn't know these people. He brought these people to me. I mean, thanks. I think this movie became this so, so interesting and so, so well-crafted, I think, because of John Davidson, who, be, who was, uh, let's say, showed me the way how to do such a science fiction movie. I mean, he knew much more about science fiction and, and special effects than I had never. I, I didn't have th that knowledge, you know. He, he t t taught me how to do this. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful for, to John Davidson, you know, a wonderful producer. But you talked about, you know, Peter Weller getting in a suit and this restricted movement. But I think the suit, even as you see it in the film, is is quite bulky. It is like this very heavy physical object, and I think that's 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 interesting. But yeah, but the, the, the version we had we was, was a little bit different, you know. I mean, that's also why in the beginning when we find that uh, that the original plan was to uh, in the aftermath of Terminator, James Cameron Terminator One, we thought that it should be Arnold, and then Rob Bottin again said to us, "If you take Arnold." The, on top of that, that costume, that would be coming really over the top. You should have somebody very slender, very slim, and basically, and the only important thing is how his jaws look. <laughs> so we basically casted partially on jaws here. <laughs> Peter Weller has really the good jaws, you know? So, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's horrible to say this, but it's true too, you know? I mean, we also looked at his talent, and we did auditions or whatever that, but ultimately, the decision really of the whole crew was based on this. Um, can you say a bit about working with, with Peter Weller? We actually invited Peter Weller to come tonight, and he uh, said he really would have loved to, but he's in Hawaii, working on Hawaii 5.0, but uh, he um, was very excited about that we were showing this uh, and doing the retrospective, but can you say a bit about working with him? It's, it's as you say, it's a film, you know, you barely, you don't see his face for a lot of it, and somehow um, there is, I think more than in most action films, certainly there's a certain pathos and a certain vulnerability to this character that he develops without even really being able to show oh. his face. Yeah, and, and in the beginning, uh, like I just explained, uh, he was very unhappy and miserable, in fact. And it thought that, that, it w that, in fact, there was nearly, let's say, an insurrection, I would say, <laughs> something like that, that he couldn't, uh, didn't want and, and couldn't do it. And he was fully right. The costume came much too late. He had no time to adapt to that costume. It was coming in in the morning at 5 o'clock, and then at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 12 hours later, he came to the set and said, be Robocop, you know. It was absolutely ridiculous, of course, what we asked Peter. And so after we solved that and we sh uh, were shaking hands and say, okay, now this, we, uh, we know how to, uh, 
how to operate now and let's let's do it uh, um, I, I it was a, a very smooth sale you know he gave me his word and I gave him uh, let's say all the time and 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 that he needed and uh, from there on it was a really wonderful production and he suffered a lot you know it's to be in that costume is extremely extremely unpleasant it's warm and we were shooting in Dallas was uh, of very high temperatures and and he never complained anymore and he was he was a great 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 guy to work with you know so all right let's take some questions from the audience uh all right we'll start at the very back i'll just repeat in case people in the back didn't hear a question about whether you made any significant changes to the script no not really no i mean it uh, I added one, one scene basically, which was uh, the guy, the, the bad guys that take the woman, uh, try to rape the woman, on, uh, and I, I invented that scene, sure. <laughs> I mean, shooting through the legs of the woman to hit his dick, isn't it? <laughs> that was me. <laughs> right. Question about this is about uh, how I guess how Robocop fits into this 80s action movie and the male action hero. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have not studied that, and, and I'm not aware really uh, if it had any influence. I, I certainly, it has been difficult also in in the in the remakes, um, and even in the sequels, has been difficult to imitate imitate the style of the movie, which is partially, of course, ironic and has a kind of a lightness about itself. Um, is not taking itself completely seriously, realizes that that this is not happening yet, and that it is a little bit weird what's happening. Um, but I think in all these sequels, be it that they have made of my work now, be it sequels and and remakes. I mean, they always seem to, to, I think the studios always wanted not to have a, a layer of lightness, a layer of irony, sarcasm, or whatever, satire. I mean, that is, now that they want to do a, a Starship Troopers, isn't it? That was recently in the newspapers that they go to remake the, the a Starship, Tro Starship Troopers. Um, and the, the, it's, it's, it was said in the article, and, and through the, the production team of that movie, of the remake, that they would go back com more, more and more towards the, the novel. And of course, we, uh, we really s tried to get away from the novel. <laughs> because we felt that the novel was fascistic and militaristic. <laughs> I mean, it is. <laughs> And we, at Numai and I and John Davidson, we all felt that, yes, the adventures of these young people, as I said, uh, against their bugs, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 there's this line in the movie where it says, uh, the, uh, the only good bug is a dead bug. In fact, on, uh, and you see it on screen, it's John Davidson himself who says that. <laughs> but you, you feel that, um, uh, that they're going back to the novel would really, uh, let's say, fit very much in a Trump uh, presidency, really. I, I wanted to just follow, follow up on that, um, you know, the point that you made about how, it's, how hard it has been to replicate the tone of, of, of this RoboCop and of 
actually of your other films, and I think this is kind of a, a signature of yours, is just this ability, um, th this ironic tone, uh, this, the, the way the film functions as an allegory without being too serious. Um, I'm wondering if, if it, this is something that you, you, it's sort of a signature, do you come by it naturally, or is it something that you work on with the material in terms of... No, it, it, it comes really naturally, I think. Be, uh, I mean, it comes up, I mean, even in, if you ever see uh, this movie, the French movie I just did, L, you will see that, uh, which is, let's say, really about rape, uh, you will see that there is still a certain lightness, a certain kind of... You can laugh, or perhaps you don't laugh, you smile. And I think that, be, that I always felt that that it was important to to stick to that, but it, it comes to my mind in an automatic way, organically, really. I, I, can't, I, I doubt if I can do it without that, you know, unless perhaps, uh, well, I think every movie has that, I think. So um, it's, it's uh, something that, that you don't even, uh, that I don't really try to do. It happens, just happens. When I read the script, then it comes out that way, in my head, you know, that, this question was about the influence of growing up in Holland. Yeah, I was six, seven years old when the movie, uh, when the war um, ended. Um, sure, I mean, I grew up, when, when you start to be conscious of the world, when you're probably four years old or something, when, that really you start to, when you start to look around, if you grow up for three, four years in the atmosphere of destruction and persecution and occupation and bombing and, and uh, which was, I lived in The Hague, which was the governmental city of the Germans and the Dutch, collaborating Dutch government, which was bombed all the time because of the V2s that they were sending from The Hague to London. Um, then you think that's the world. You really grow up in thinking the world is like that way, it's like growing up as a four-year-old in Syria now, isn't it? Then you not think that's it, that's how it is. And I think that always will play a part in my mind. Of course, I found out after the war, you find out that peace is a, a normality. I mean, of course, of course, Americans have never been occupied, and neither have the English. So perhaps that is an experiment, an experience that is really at that young age that might be defining the way your brain works in the first place you know that i feel comfortable when i think about destruction and and death and 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 all that stuff um that feels completely natural to me i i am not afraid of it i survived that and 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 i think i use it all the time but not in a conscious way it comes up you know it's like, oh yeah it's horrible that should it so uh, I want to thank you all for coming. And Paul, really, thank you so much. Okay, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit that for nearly 50 years has served as New York's premier film organization, with screenings every day of the year at the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center and the Walter Reed Theater. Now showing... Tomer Heyman's thrilling documentary, Mr. Gaga, which is an immersive experience eight years in the making. Enter the world of Ohad Naharan, the brilliant Israeli choreographer and artistic director of the Bat Sheva Dance Company, who redefined the language of modern dance. For showtimes and tickets, visit filmlink.org. So, um... Of the 
of the films in your career that have been sort of misunderstood or underappreciated at the time of release, where does this one sit for you? Uh, there's, uh, yeah, there was, well, perhaps uh, Showgirls, of course. More so? <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, Showgirls and Starship Troopers, one after the other, didn't help me, no. <laughs> We were, we were talking about this earlier, and um, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, I think it's hard to see why, well, maybe it's not hard to see why, but this film was very widely uh, misread at the time of its release. You were both talking about presenting the film and the kinds of questions that were coming up. Um, can you just recap for us a little bit about what, what, what that was like presenting Starship Troopers in 1997? What were people, what were people saying to you? Well, at that time, it, it was uh, in general by the, uh, uh, certainly by American critics, but later in Europe, it was the same situation. It was bashed because it was accused of being uh, neo-fascist or neo-Nazi. In fact, in big uh, American newspapers, uh, not even a, 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 as a review, as a film review, but as a redactional article, I think, was Washington Post or Wall Street Journal. Uh, where they said that this is a very dangerous movie because it promotes uh, fascism and Nazism and these two, the writer and the director, are neo-fascist. <laughs> and, um, and that was, uh, let's say, I thought that there was perhaps an American overreaction, but when I went to uh, Europe uh, with Casper, we went to, um, to all the European countries, but especially the countries that had been fascist, Italy and Germany hated the movie. The press did. Yeah, they were really, really attacking it left, right and center. So it was perhaps a, a, a general, uh, let's say, rejection of the movie. And um, I think what people, what the critics at that time absolutely did not see, that there was a double narrative, isn't it? There is a narrative really which is saying these are wonderful guys and they fight for their country and they are really heroes and they're supporting each other and they're wonderful and they and they go to win and it is one of the last things of the, of the movie is is saying they'll fight and they will win basically and so um that uh, that element was coming of course of the original novel by Robert Heinlein. So uh, it was not something we invented, we took that from the novel. Uh, that, was the that was the first narrative. The, but there was a second narrative that was at Neumeyer, was the writer of the movie, and, and John Davidson, the producer, and me, where we were also fighting with the book. Because the book of Robert Heinlein, science f one of the, at that time, uh, important science fiction writers, is militaristic and fascist. I mean, his philosophy is that way. And we were, our, our philosophy was really different. Still, we wanted to, do, to tell the story of a really wonderful, adventurous story about these young boys and, bo and girls fighting bugs, but we also wanted to show that these people are really in their heart, or without knowing it, I would say, they're on their way to fascism. So it was like telling one story is these guys are great and wonderful heroes, heroes, and the other story was, by the way, they're fascist. <laughs> well, that was not so much uh, understood. I think that's exactly what people had a hard time with, right? Because this, this sense, this idea that a film like this, it's usually very easy to locate like how you identify uh, with the with the hero, um, and here your heroes are 
members of a fascist army. So I think that like obviously short circuits the way a viewer. Yeah, but of course we all know that the people in Germany in 30, uh, and in Italy in these years of the 30s were really uh, applauding all that, you know. So I think we, uh, I think we, we wrote, let's say, uh, one narrative that basically was saying yes to it, and another nar narrative saying, yeah, but it's not, uh, but realize what you're admiring. And I think that was extremely unusual, of course, to do that. I mean, it still is. I think to have a narrative where you say, where you seduce, by purpose of course, where you seduce the audience to go with your heroes, and then basically suddenly showed the audience that what you have been admiring is perhaps really something okay, it might be evil. And I think that was, let's say, uh, what made it nearly impossible at that time for people to, let's say, uh, to accept the movie. Casper, do you recall uh, when you were, you know, working, um, just preparing the film and, and, and discussing discussions with Paul? Did this did this come up very much? Just like discussing the film on a thematic level, talking about it as a satire or fascism, or was that not part of the conversation? You know, they, they, they gave me the script and they had an audition for it and uh, that didn't come up per se in the conversation, but you're reading the script and you're, a, I was a fan of, of Paul's beforehand, I was a fan of his films and, and the way he, um, the way he was on set for me going into this, I mean this man was the first man on set, the last man off, always working, he had everything storyboarded out and we really just did what he wanted and, and there was a couple times where I was, I'd be like, I wasn't sure, but he's like, just say it, it's great, this is great, and it's funny, this is great. <laughs> and he was right. This, um, I think this film, like, like all of your films, I think the ones that were not appreciated at the time, um, have been sort of rehabilitated. I think people, people caught up with them. There was, you know, in some ways, in some ways ahead of their time. When did you sense the tide turning with Starship Troopers? Because now it's a film that obviously is a real, it's a real cult favorite. Casper, you were saying you, you present the film often these days, and you know, it's a role that's he very- does that all the time. All the time. Well, I mean, I, I wasn't Johnny Rico before uh, I did Starship Troopers, but there isn't a day that goes by that somebody doesn't, I'm at the gas station, somebody will go, Rico! Uh, and <laughs> you know what to do. But I think it took a couple of years. It was, uh, <coughs> I won't say because that sounds horrible, but, but, but it was, of course, after what happened in New York uh, that people were starting to look at the movie in a different way, I think. Um, so I was at the beginning of the 20th century, of 21st century. But um, uh, by the circumstances, by what had, had happened at that time, I think they realized that we were um, telling a story on the, on, uh, 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 that had to be taken at, in, at two levels. And, and the, first, the second level that uh, we discussed, uh, that we, I talked about a minute ago, was only, uh, let's say, uh, at that time that they started to look at the second level in a serious way. I think they probably, when they were seeing the movie the first time, if you see, for example, a scene where uh, there is a, 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 a woman and, and with a couple of kids, basically, it's, it's a, in one of the newsreels, of that's the, the fake newsreels that are interspersed in the movie. They, they they, and, and it's all about fighting big bucks. And it, but then you see a woman that basically uh, uh, tries to have the children to, uh, uh, to kill uh, cockroaches. 
And the, and the woman gets completely crazy and says, yeah, kill them, kill them. And it says, kill your enemy, isn't it? I mean, so I think that the, these elements were there and they were very visibly there that we were saying, well, these people are, let's say, hysterical, you know? These people that are going to war, they are hysterical. And they like it, but they're hysterical. That was, but no, at that time that the movie came out, I think that was completely not seen. This, this, this sort was kind of comedy or whatever, bad comedy probably. Yeah, well, because there, there's people in the press that didn't that said they didn't get it, and then then like I I just did a panel last week where the guy said that he panned it, he panned the movie when it first came out, and that then he went back and rewatched it, and now it's in one of his top three films of all time. But he said at first he just didn't understand the sense of humor and he didn't understand the satire. He didn't get it at all. He didn't see those elements. He just he kind of washed over them. And then he went back and he went, oh. And now it's one of his third. It just was so interesting to see. But it's like, thanks a lot for the review the first time around. Yeah, it was difficult. And, but that, I think what was, what was important for us, for at Numai and I and, and John, John Davidson, was <coughs> this idea that we really were fighting, we were fighting with the novel. We tried to do one thing and do the other thing at the same time. And that was, if we succeeded or not, but that was the idea. And we didn't want to go, let's say, say this philosophy we support. It was this, this philosophy exists, and perhaps, we are, of course, we are not talking about Buenos Aires. Eh? I mean, the movie is about Buenos Aires. I mean, we are talking about the United States, of course. We were not talking, I mean, we situated it in Buenos Aires, but we were, if you see the movie, you understand that it's not about that, you know. It's really about possibilities in the United States sure. that exist and basically, and, uh, and are more visible now than even uh, 20 years ago. I'm not Buenos Aires. <laughs> I'm not Buenos Aires. I'm not from Buenos Aires. No. <laughs> Why did you do that? The book wasn't uh, the book wasn't set in Buenos Aires, was it? Yes, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, was? Uh, fascistic. No, Buenos, it was Buenos Aires in the book. Yeah, Buenos Aires. We took that from the book, okay. but we, we we were talking about something else. Yeah, yeah, we didn't say that, but we, of course we were talking about something else. Um, Casper, you've uh, I think you were you were in one of the sequels, right? I was in the number third. I was in the number third. three. I wasn't in number two. Um, how did that experience compare, you know, just working on one of the sequels versus the original with, with Paul? Well, I, I love Ed Neumeier a lot, um, but, it, you know, I, I, loved, I, I loved the opportunity to go back there. It was interesting just because people, when I put the uniform back on, they just were like, oh my God, Johnny Rico. And, but I, I get that all the time, even at the gas station, I said, so... Uh, it was just, it was awesome, but uh, you know, it's, it's Paul Verhoeven that cha changed me by getting me in, and Ed Neumeier, uh, in the first one, and, and there is really no comparison between them, but it was fun to see that Ed put the humor back in the third one a little bit, and I think he put it a little over the top. And of course, don't forget, the first one was made for $100 million, the second and third one for ten. So there is a real difference there. <laughs> I mean, that you should take in consideration, you know, for $10 million, you cannot do what you can do with 100 million, clearly. And so I th they, they could not get to really ever to the visual, let's say, uh, uh, exaggerations that basically are visible in, 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 in number one. I mean, there was no money to do that, you know. You were f fully aware. They had to shoot in South Africa, I think, yeah, to make yeah, it. Yeah, we, we shot Starship Troopers yeah. 3 in South Africa, and they, they uh, shot the second one. And they took the humor out of the second one, I think, too. 
Yeah. Um, I guess I should ask that question. How did you get away with making this $100 million film? Every time I see this, it's kind of a well, uh, uh, Making a $100 million movie is not a, diff is not a problem. No, this one in particular. <laughs> I mean... Uh, if you read the script, you think if you want to do this well, it's $100 million. I mean, $100 million is really cheap nowadays, you know. A lot of these movies are made for 200 or 300 million. I mean, we succeeded to do this kind, this movie that is so subversive and politically incorrect, you could say. I mean, we received, it was possible to do that because the regime in, at Sony, where we started the movie, changed every three, four months. So we had Mike Medavoy who greenlit the movie, then we had uh, uh, Mark Platt, then we had Mark Kenton, then we had Cooper, and finally we got John Kelly and Amy Pascal. And, and basically it's only at the end of that whole process, these two years, nobody ever looked at the rushes because they had no time because they were fired every three, four months. <laughs> So we got away with it because nobody saw it. You know? And then when it was done, I remember Lucy Fischer, who was vice president at that time, looking at me and saying, well, these are Nazi flags. And I remember saying, yeah, but it's a different color, really. <laughs> they were stalled, at st uh, they were flabbergasted that this movie was made, you know, <laughs> and they postponed it immediately be uh, because they had other, uh, uh, we were supposed to go out in July, but then they basically they pushed it backwards to September or October. No, I mean, November 7th. Uh, yeah, they, they, they didn't know how to handle it when they really finally saw it, you know. They had no <laughs> it's amazing, of course, but it could only, because every, every uh, CEO there basically left after three months. Yeah. That's the real reason. Yeah. So it's like Phil Tippett, who, who did all the uh, animals say, the most, it's the most expensive art movie ever made. Earlier tonight when we were talking about Robocop, you were saying that that was your first um, you know, full American film. You, had, you were new to the country and new to the system and, and you, know, you, you, you were really relying on what the script gave you in terms of how it related to American culture and politics. By this time with Starship Troopers, I assume you were a little more yeah, that was uh, certainly uh, t 10 years later and had been studying and, and, and uh, American politics much more close up. And so, so I think when we were working on the, on the script, um, it was more a dialogue then that between Ed Numari and me. And I remember we, all these things that are, are, let's say, strange or funny or satirical or ironic, uh, you will see that. Um, um, we, we invented them laughing, really. We were laughing at our, at our own proposals, you know, and when we were showing, let's say, uh, ch young children fighting together, a gun in their hands and all that stuff, and immediate, then no, no trial, just death sentence, well, immediately, and all. I mean, we took that all from Texas, basically, ever, um, <laughs> where Bush was then governor, really. But I mean, that's all, on all honesty, we did. I, mean, I remember when we were, were writing it, we were laughing all the time. I mean, so we didn't try to say we are going to make a really, uh, let's say, political, uh, philosophical statement. It came really in our fight with Robert Heinlein's book. We really came to that because that was our protection. That was basically the other side of what we were claiming that these are heroes. That, that was, uh, let's say, came in in a very organic way in our resistance to accept 
this militaristic fascistic philosophy. So it's interesting, as you were saying earlier, if people were in the earlier screening, that the new Starship Troopers is actually an attempt to get closer to Heinlein, basically to make a, a more fascist film. Uh, well, that's yeah, they but they're basically following the times, yeah. That's what they say. Oh, they fell. Very appropriate, yeah. I mean, it's up to date, you know. Yeah. You know, what's I, interesting for me is that this movie, you know, it's attracted both the right and the left. Mm -hmm. I get people that are, are, are far right that come up to me and that love it, and then people that are far left that love it, and they say that it's their film. And I hear that Clinton loved this movie a lot, right? And then, so Clinton loved this, and he was watching in, in, in his war room, um, and he said, oh, wait a minute, that's the goo, the goo's coming up. And then I was on a flight to Washington, D.C., and somebody was talking to me about Heinlein, and I was reading another script, and I kept flipping through, just reading, and, and he talked to me for like five minutes. He goes, oh, where are you going? I'm like, well, I'm going to the White House for this charity event. Um, and he said, oh, well, enjoy it. I've been there for seven years, and I look over, and he'd been talking to me about Heinlein, how much he loves Starship Troopers, and it was Carl Rove. Wow. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe we should ask you a political question. Um, your, your last two films, you know, we, you, you, they were Dutch and French films, Black Book and L. Um, you've, but you've lived or spent a good part of your time in America for like 30 years now. Are you planning to make an American film? You seem like kind of the perfect filmmaker for the age of Trump in some ways. Sure. No, I would love to make an American movie. I made these European movies because I couldn't get a job here. I mean, I couldn't find, let's put it this way, I could not find a movie, a, a script that was for me on the level, be it Basic Instinct or Starship Troopers or Robocop. I could not find that. What I got from, my, from everybody from the studios or agents or whatever was always, let's say, I have done it already. I mean, uh, sci always science fiction, more action, more science fiction, action. And I wanted to do something different. And, and finally, in 2002, after making Hollow Man, basically, that, that I felt uh, was finally a movie where, that had no signature at all anymore, I decided that I could not, should not go that direction. I should stop making the, a movie that the studios wanted. I decided to make a movie that I wanted. And that was very difficult. And ultimately, I went to, to Holland uh, to make Black Book which is a movie that I wanted to do, as, as was Elle. So it has been, of course there is, is, is uh, American movies that I would love to, ma to make. I mean, see, if you see Starship Troopers or, or, or Robocop or, or Basic Instinct, you see how I much used American talent all over the place. It's, I mean, this country is, has an enormous amount of talent before the camera, in front of the camera, behind the camera. And it's always has been, let's say, a pleasure to work in the United States. But of course, for me, it also has to be the pleasure of being innovative and that I do something that I have not done before. I didn't do sequels. I didn't do sequels to neither to Robocop or Total Recall or Basic Instinct have all been asked for me or Starship Troopers. I don't want to do it because for me, it has to be something new. It has to be an adventure, something I have not done. I have to be in fear for the project. I have to be feeling anxiety because I don't know how to do it because I have not done it before. And I refuse to do things that I've done because I know that I won't be inspired by fear anymore. I will just do it because I know how to do it. You know.
And this, this is why he needs to make more films here. It's, it's amazing because he, when, when we shot Starship Troopers, he was, he was the first one on the set, the last one off the set. Everything was meticulously done, taken care of, and he had the writer on the set, which I, this was, for me, I was, it was one of my first films. It was an experience that I thought that this was the norm. And he had more energy than anybody. And sometimes, it, I, I guess that's scary for people because there's too many yes men or women uh, in Hollywood that you know won't listen to somebody that that is just I mean his his passion for me was it was just awesome to be a part of and it's still to see it right now he's got the same passion so for me it hasn't changed in watching him in 20 years. All right, um, before we start the film, we're going to let the audience ask questions. Um, this question was about the nudity in the film. Um, well, I, I mean, I try to do that. Um, if you have seen uh, this this evening Robocop, when you get uh, in one of the first scenes, there is a, in the when you're among the cops there in the dressing room, there is a woman there. As you see her breast, but, and and but I, I shot it in a way that you didn't see it very well, uh, by coincidence. And then I thought I, sh I, I would make a, uh, let's say come back to that is with Starship Troopers, but of course it was by an act. By let's say uh, putting forward an extreme version of being that there is no difference between men and women. That was the idea that this is possible in this wonderful fascistic utopia, if you want to call it that way. <laughs> Everybody is really equal. <laughs> of course, real, realize that basically Hitler's Nazism is national socialism. Yeah? So Hitler was even a socialist. So and I, I was trying to, to extend this utopia to that. Of course, it's exaggeration, but I thought it was kind of fun to do it, and especially because Casper uh, uh, was the first one, basically, to take his trousers off. <laughs> no, in fact, I, you were me. the first one to take your trousers off. I think he's got the story wrong. I got the story wrong because I did it first. Yes, you did. <laughs> but I mean, I, I saw it was really that motivation to, I mean, of course, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced that, be, that men and women are completely equal, you know. Absolutely no doubt in any way, in, as I've said many times in my own elementary school, and high school, university, they were all better than me. So I don't see any difference. There is, of course, there's a biological difference. That's it. For the rest, it's all the same. All the abilities are there of both, for both sexes. And, and so to, to, I try to, to put that into some metaphor with this uh, scene in, in, in Starship Troopers. Yeah, because sure. you've always had a love for, you always had strong women characters though too. You always have really strong, tough women. Yeah, I'm married as she's here. I'm married to one, you know. Yeah. Well, because it's true, because when you first read Robocop, you, and my daughters are similar. Yeah, but you threw RoboCop out, didn't you? Huh? When you first got the script for RoboCop. Uh, yeah, I told them that. Uh, oh, that, you did? Uh, that, that I threw it, uh, yeah, but that I, I threw it away, and my wife corrected me, you know. She read it and said, you're, you're, you're wrong. You have to read it again. Finally, I started to read it again, and then I started to see it. But, um, so you can thank her. I have to thank her many, many times. I was, I was telling the audience. <laughs> the, Martin. Uh, there, in the back. No, I mean, she made me come to the United States, you know, when the difficulties started in Holland with, uh, let's say, subsidies and money and all that stuff. Um, uh, she was the one, I was afraid, I wouldn't have done it, but she said, okay, I'll take the kids, I'll take care of the kids, and, and, and you make the movie, Robocop in this case. Uh, she was the one, basically, that pushed me to, to use Arnold Schwarzenegger in faith. 
and I showed her the, the, the first tape, the first, uh, uh, let's say, audition of, of, uh, of Casper van Dien. Eh? And she approved. <laughs> she asked me I to mean, take my she pen. has been extremely important, as have my daughters and whatever. In fact, if you look at Elle, you'll see that uh, the woman there, the main character, Isabelle Huppert, um, is, is head of a, a company, uh, is the CEO of a company that makes video games. And that idea, uh, in, in, the, in the original novel, she is just the, uh, the CEO of a group of writers, which is not very visual, of course. And when I put that uh, on the table, that it was kind of boring to, to use that for a movie, um, my youngest daughter, who is a painter, said, why don't you make her the CEO of a video game company? So I think my family has always been extremely inspiring, supportive, and, and, and have basically made me push me to make decisions that I didn't have the guts to do decide myself. Okay, one more, one final good question. Yes. Uh, just, I think it's just uh, a comment about the, the relevance, um, the prescience of these films. You know, there are science fiction films from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and, and he's saying how uh, relevant they seem today and whether that was something that might have crossed your mind when you were making them. Well, it's, uh, let's say it's very different. I mean, there is, of course, we're living in an extremely, in, uh, uh, you can call it interesting or scary uh, uh, times. Um, and I would, of course, you would like to do something about that too. You know, you would try, but I think if you go too, too directly into the now, you have no distance to, to, to really treat something like that, you know, then you need to have a certain, certain distance as an artist to the project and not be in the middle of it. And so basically, so what I did when this all happened lately, I started to read about Adolf Hitler. And basically, and I think studying 33, 1933, 1934 in Germany would be, um, could, could be a metaphor basically that you could use to talk about the now. I said something terrible, I think, you know? No, I mean, it's true, because back then, I mean, Hitler had taken the, the most, you know, the country in the deepest poverty, and he turned around and got rid of it, while America was still at 20%, I think, um, unemployment at the time. So, I mean, if you take a look at that, it, there's a truism to what you said. Of course, nothing is the same, of course, and uh, what, what, nothing will happen in the United States like happened in Germany in 1933-34. Clearly not. But I think I read an article, an interview with Michael Moore, basically saying uh, you, uh, you should read a book that is called Friendly Fascism. Friendly Fascism is, a, is, a, uh, is about fascism of, 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 with a smile. And I think that's what we might be facing. So I think, I'm thinking about, it. of course you try to react as, a, as an artist to, the, to what's happening around you, but I think if you, make it to, to, if you immediately go for that and, and, and try to uh, use the, the now for a movie, I think you failed because you're too close. Okay, on that sobering note, we have to end it. Uh, but uh, enjoy the film, and if you tomorrow, Paul is back uh, for Turkish Delight um, and for Showgirls. So do join us as well if you can. I want to thank Casper for coming, and Paul, thank you. We'll see you tomorrow.
close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.